0: Welcome back, everyone, to the 172nd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms the Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Have you ever thought, I wish I could just hypnotize my teen so that they would dot, dot, dot? Well, our guest today, Dr. Ron Anbar, is going to talk about how you can change teens and adult lives through hypnosis. Dr. Anbar talks about the negative connotations and misperceptions of hypnosis, like it is some version of mind control over another person, either used for evil intentions or used in entertainment, like getting some sophisticated adult to cluck like a chicken. And these misperceptions are seen both in children's and adult movies. But Dr. Anbar says that it's the complete opposite that hypnosis therapy helps people claim more personal power over their bodies, their feelings, and their relationships. Dr. Ron Anbar, MD, FAAP, author of new book, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, is board certified in both pediatric pulmonology and general pediatrics, But what separates him from many doctors is the 25 years of experience he has treating children with hypnosis and counseling. He is considered one of the leading experts in this field and has served as a guest editor and advisor editor for the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis. Dr. Anbar is on a mission to bring clinical hypnosis into the mainstream, helping thousands of children benefit from this often misunderstood and underutilized therapy. His new book is a down-to-earth guide on how this therapy works, including case studies of children he has worked with personally with step-by-step advice for parents so that they can take advantage of this non-invasive, painless method of treatment in caring for their children's medical problems and emotional needs. So welcome, Dr. Ron
1: Anbar. Thank you very much for having me.
0: I am so glad you're here, and I can't wait to dive into all of this. But first, are you a parent?
1: I am a parent of four children, ranging in age now from 21 to 30. Time flies.
0: Yeah. Yes. Are they boys, girls?
1: I have three boys and one girl, and uh, two of them are going to be married this coming year, which is very exciting. My my daughter, who's 26. Is I think I'm going to be married in October. They haven't finalized the date. And my son, who's now thirty, going to be 31 this year, will be getting married next February.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. Yay. It's about time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. So how did you find your way to hypnosis after several years as a practicing pulmonary and general pediatrician?
1: Well, 25 years ago, I ran into a patient who was very allergic to milk products. And he came in one day and said, you know, lately when I've been smelling cheeseburgers, I've been developing asthma attacks. And I thought it was a rather strange symptom. And I said, well, can you imagine eating a cheeseburger, which is something you couldn't do in real life? And he closed his eyes and within seconds he was having a real trouble breathing. And Mm. I thought to myself, oh, no, he's going to have a really bad attack. I said, stop it. And he did. And I said, you're kidding me. No, no, I wasn't kidding. It was my asthma. I said, whoa, can you really think you were into an illness? Mm -hmm. And if so, can you think your way out? And that was my rather dramatic introduction to the world of imagination. And later I found out it was hypnosis. Wow.
0: So was that Paul?
1: That was Paul. Yep.
0: So can you tell us one other story that got you interested in hypnosis?
1: Involving Paul? Well,
0: yeah, another one.
1: Another one. Well, I should just say, I worked with Paul for a good year before I did it with any other patient because I didn't know much about hypnosis. And I thought Paul should go learn hypnosis so that he can help himself maybe prevent his asthma attacks. But he didn't want to see any psychologists. He wanted to work with me. And I said, okay, well, I'll learn under the supervision of a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist. And so Paul was my teacher, actually. Sure, there's many children. There was a patient, young man by the name of Ian, who I met through his brother. His brother had asthma, and he was graduating from my pulmonary clinic, and he told me I have this brother who has had belly pains for 13 years. And I said, oh, I'd like to help him. So I met Ian, and, and indeed he had a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, And which whenever you hear the word syndrome, that means they don't really know what's causing it. <laughs> <laughs> little clue. And he had been tried on many medications and had many medical procedures, and he was really affected. He couldn't attend school until 10 in the morning because he was in the bathroom. He couldn't mm. go it after school activities because he had to go to the bathroom. And by teaching him to do hypnosis, which means using your imagination to calm yourself. Another thing is all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So uh, nobody can do this to you against your will. But by learning to calm himself and practicing over a period of three weeks, his symptoms are 95% better. And I can tell you that this happened more than 20 years ago. I contacted him recently to ensure I can use his name in my book. And so this is like 20 years later, he's still doing fine. He has two kids of his own now.
0: Wow. That's a great story. So yeah. So in your chapter, the mystery and history of hypnosis, you talk about the negative connotations of hypnosis, you know, like it's a way of controlling another person or that hypnosis is seen as And entertainment, like getting some responsible adult to like cluck like a chicken or something like that. But you say it's the opposite, that hypnosis therapy helps people claim more personal power over their bodies, their feelings and their relationships. So what is hypnosis actually? And do you need someone to hypnotize you or can you do it yourself?
1: So, yes, you can do it yourself because all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. You could do it with the help of somebody else, like a therapist or a doctor who can walk you through it, but you're ultimately doing it to yourself. And the only mind control is in, hypnosis, in hypnosis is you controlling your own mind better. Mm, yeah. So hypnosis is a state of mind where you may be more suggestible to input from a therapist or from yourself. Um, it's a way of using imagination to shift your mindset. So if you're anxious, for example, you can calm yourself quickly. If you're sad, you can figure out what's bothering me and fix that. If you're having physical symptoms, you can use a metaphor to improve the physical symptom. I want to tell you this. Any person, not just children, any person who has chronic symptoms, physical or mental symptoms, can benefit from hypnosis. And that's a big statement. I want to explain why that is. Whenever you have a chronic symptoms, you had something for a long time, your psychology is involved. Maybe you're anxious about it. You're worried it'll affect your life. Maybe you're depressed about it. It's changed your life. And those feelings that you have about the symptoms will change the way the symptoms manifest. They might make them worse. So when you learn how to control your mind better, then your symptoms improve. And there's a whole host of patients. They're in the minority, but a large number for whom the psychological problems cause the symptoms. Simple example, child is bullied in school, gets stomach aches. You have a tough boss at work, you get headaches. Those are stressors causing symptoms. When you teach those people to control their stress reactions, their symptoms just go away.
0: Mm. So I was struck by the example of the boy, maybe it's Marty with the vocal dysfunction disorder that you talked about the egg.
1: Yeah, so I think that was Teddy in the book. Or, uh, yeah, Teddy. Um, and he had—he actually had a lump in his throat that he felt he couldn't swallow. He developed in math class. And then he'd go to the nurse and stay there for a while until the lump went away. <clears throat> and when he came to see me, I, I did a breathing test. And it was normal, and he had a normal exa- physical examination. And if I hadn't known about hypnosis, this is what I would have done. I would have taken a chest X-ray to make sure there's nothing in the chest causing this lump sensation, I would have done a neck X-ray. I would have thought maybe he has acid reflux, so I would have done a pH probe test, and that's where you take a wire, put it in the nose, into the stomach, and it stays in overnight, you measure the acid level. And then if that doesn't show anything, I would have done a bronchoscopy, where under anesthesia you look with a telescope into the lungs to see what's causing the lump sensation. But I had the hypnosis tool in my back pocket, and it only took him, five minutes to learn how to calm himself. And I asked him about an image he could use to imagine the lump going away. And he thought he'd like to imagine eating an egg because it felt like an egg in his throat. I said, fine. So when you get that lump, go into hypnosis, go into a relaxing place and eat the egg. And he came back two weeks later. Oh, I'm 95% better. Most of the time, I don't even have the problem anymore. We finally fixed it. He decided he could imagine the remaining problem was like a boulder that he could wash away in a river. So he washed it away. And that was the end of the symptom. Now, no x-ray, no pH probe, no bronchoscopy, no money spent just teaching a child in five or 10 minutes, how to think differently, solve the problem. And he's not in the minority. There are many, many such children who are suffering and the doctors who don't realize the symptom is psychological or the symptom has a psychological solution put them through all sorts of things. And then when the kid doesn't get better at the end, well, maybe she goes go see psychologists.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's such a powerful story. So that leads to this question in terms of how can hypnosis help when medical therapy isn't working?
1: Well, the reason medical therapy often doesn't work is because their doctors are treating either the wrong thing or they're treating things incompletely. So take a case of a child with asthma. They really have asthma and they get asthma medicines that can help the asthma improve. But they also get anxious when they get their asthma because, gosh, sometimes they need shots. Sometimes they have to go to the hospital. That's scary. So getting anxious with asthma is a normal reaction. When they get anxious, the symptoms of anxiety can include being short of breath, having a racing heart. So they get an asthma flare-up. They go to the doctor and the doctor gives them asthma medicine. And that helps the asthma, the physical asthma, but does nothing for their anxiety. They're still short of breath, they're still anxious. And then the doctor gets worried, oh, you must have bad asthma, so I'm gonna give you more asthma medicine. And guess what? They don't get better because it's anxiety that's driving the symptom. And that's a kind of a vicious cycle, and this is all too common. So the reason hypnosis works in this setting is because the solution lies in teaching the child to think differently, and then the symptoms get much better. I've seen kids, I remember this one girl, she was 12 years old and I met her. She had been in oral steroids for 10 years. Mm. Uh, Hopefully your audience knows oral steroids are not a good drug. They can have a lot of side effects. Mm. Inhaled steroids, by the way, which are often a treatment we use for asthma, are fine. They're very low dose. Like an inhaled steroid, I might give you 40 micrograms, a very low dose. Oral steroid, I might prescribe 40,000 micrograms, a lot more. So oral steroids can cause you to be overweight, can make you brittle bones, can make you not grow. And she had all of those things. And Mm. the reason she was on oral steroids for so long is her asthma was really bad, or so they thought. Every time they tried to stop the steroids, she ended up in intensive care units. Met her at 12 years of age. She was still out of breath despite all her medicines. Wow. I taught her hypnosis. She came back the next week. She said, you know, the hypnosis works better than my rescue medicine. I said, oh, good. So from now on, before using rescue medicine, do the hypnosis. And then I started taking her off the steroids. It took me a year because it's she was dependent on them. But after a year, she was still fine. In fact, she stopped all of her asthma medicines and I had to yell at her to start some of them because she did have some mild asthma beneath it all, uh, but she never needed steroids again. This girl was made a medical cripple because her physicians did not recognize that a big part of her symptoms was anxiety as opposed to her asthma. Mm.
0: Well, as a therapist for 28 years, I've seen many, many stories similar to what you're saying. And the anxiety piece is so huge. So how can hypnosis help anxiety? What does that look like?
1: It can help anxiety by teaching a child to think about a calm place and how to trigger the calmness at a moment's notice with a gesture, let's say making a fist or taking a breath or, or making a thumbs up sign. And so you, you have the child rehearse this when they're calm. And then at times when they're stressed, they they trigger the relaxation response as a way of calming themselves. In addition, you can teach children to reach deep inside into their subconscious. And that's a part of them we define as the part of your mind that you're not usually aware of. And what I've found is Time and time again, the children's subconscious seems to be wiser and knows more than the child themselves. And by reaching inside, they get the subconscious can help identify why they might be anxious or how they might solve anxiety, and they become empowered in that fashion.
0: Oh, that's so great. So, how do you teach a teen to get in a hypnotic state?
1: So, what I'm about to tell you can work for kids. Nine and 10 and above. It's not just teenagers, but we could do this now. If your listening audience wants to do this, I'll I'll walk you through and I'll teach the average teen. So I'll tell them, pick a relaxing place in your mind that's safe and comfortable. And then we're going to talk about what you might sense with each of your five senses in that place. And the reason we're going to do that is because whenever you imagine a sense, it activates the part of your mind Uh, that actually senses that sense. So it's a whole brain activity. Plus, by covering all five senses, we make sure we got your strong sense. And also I might tell them that if you can't imagine exactly what that sense feels like, you can imagine what it might feel like and it works the same way. And then I'd walk them through this. Okay, so pick your place. And again, if your audience wants to do this, you can think of a place you want to relax in. And when you're ready, imagine what you might see there. What colors there might be? Are there people there? Are are you in nature? Are you in a fancy hotel room? And then imagine what you might hear. Laughter, music, people talking, sounds of nature, silence. And what might you smell? Perfume, suntan lotion, fresh air, flowers, And then if you were to touch something, what would it feel like? Smooth, warm, grainy, fine. And finally, what might you taste? Is it salty, sweet, or sour? And notice that as you imagine all your senses, you can become more relaxed and the experience can seem more real and recognize that whenever you want to calm yourself, bring yourself back to this place and immediately you can become this calm. And that's what I would show them. And then I'd teach them how to trigger that relaxation with the gesture that I mentioned earlier.
0: Yeah. I know reading in your book, you talked about like having the kids like walking downstairs to that place and opening a door like going and then counting from 10 to 1.
1: You can do all sorts of things. The book I wrote over a period of 20 years. So some of the oh, wow. I used 20 years ago and some of the examples are more recent. So you can deepen hypnosis by walking downstairs or upstairs or in circles and counting. So you might say, every number I count, you'll go deeper into hypnosis. You'll become more relaxed. One, two, three, four, five, a little bit slower than that. But... What i found is that's usually not necessary. Okay. And so as my practice of hypnosis evolves, I became much less directed. I, I think that old style hypnosis, uh, I'm talking 50 years ago, 80 years ago, was you will do what I say. Here is a pattern that you will follow, and you will go into hypnosis. And while I have a pattern, I mean, I talk about relaxing place. It's the place that the that the patient or the client. Imagines, and uh, it's pretty non-specific, as you saw, uh, and that's sufficient for most patients. And one of the reasons I don't like directing, like going downstairs or going down elevators, is first of all, it's I I'm typically the one picking that, and the patient might have a negative association with that. Maybe they fell down mm. the stairs once.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Maybe they near had a near drowning episode, and if I talk about a beach, they're going to not like that. So. I think it's much safer and easier. Just let the patient pick a place and just give some non-specific directions, and it works beautifully.
0: So, do you have the teens say those things out loud? Like, I see the ocean. I see this, the waves. Or do, are they quiet?
1: I often have engaged them in conversation throughout. Um, okay, it helps me know where they're at. As yeah. we know a little bit about their experience, I can tell pretty quick. I and mean, some teens are very, very descriptive. They'll give a great details. And then I know they're going to be great hypnotic subjects. And some will give me one or two words. And so I'm going to have to work a bit harder with those kids. Uh, yeah. So, and also, you know, some people think hypnosis is a person who sits there quietly. And By having them talk, they, you know, it, it normalizes hypnosis. And later when we have the subconscious talk or interact, it doesn't seem so weird. Oh,
0: that's so good. Love it. All right. So I'm really curious about this. So, is hypnosis the same as A, visualization, or B, meditation? And how are they similar and how are they different?
1: Great question. So, hypnosis often involves visualization, but doesn't have to. So, like, I personally cannot visualize a wit, and usually enough. <laughs> And yet I do hypnosis all the time with my other senses and other ways, like focusing on my breathing, or I've just learned to go into a trance state very easily, just going, whatever that means. Visualization can be done in hypnosis. Uh, Guided imagery is an example of a form of hypnosis. I sort of did guided imagery with your audience a few moments ago when I said, go to your relaxing place. But it's not necessary. There are other ways of doing hypnosis. Meditation. Overlaps with hypnosis and that it involves shifting the mindset. However, it has very different goals than hypnosis. So meditation, the goal is to, well, I'm going to put the goal in quotes. The, the technique is to focus on a single thought or mantra or breath and let go of all other of thoughts and do that for 20, 30 minutes. So the goal is just to be. Hypnosis is much more goal-oriented. So you, you want to overcome your anxiety. So we're going to use imagery it will help with the anxiety. We're going to talk to your subconscious, it will help with the anxiety. So it's a lot more active, a lot more going on. I mentioned meditation takes 20, 30 minutes done right. Hypnosis can take two, three minutes. So it's okay. much less investment of time. And so teens, of course, are much more interested in that.
0: <laughs> yes. One of the things I noticed in the book, and you just said it, before is that you get them to use their imagery, like you're not putting any of your imagery onto them. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And so you have to think on your feet because you never know uh, what imagery they're going to come up with. But once you learn to do this, it's fairly easy to morph any image into a suggestion. Uh, One of the stories in the book was about the six-year-old boy who had a seizure disorder since he was born because he had brain damage from having a bleed in his brain at birth and he would start having a seizure on the right side of his brain and then tell his mom something's going on then he'd have a left side seizure with spread and I thought to myself hmm, maybe if you thought he thought differently you could head off the seizures because seizures involve brain waves and I asked his mother for permission to teach him hypnosis for that I was seeing him for his asthma at the time and she said I could teach him and I said who's your favorite character he said SpongeBob (laughs) SquarePants. Personally, I do not like SpongeBob, but (laughs) this young man liked him. And I said, okay, every night, this is six-year-old hypnosis. We went through teenage hypnosis a moment ago. This is six-year-old. Every night, before you go to bed, put SpongeBob on your head. And if a storm comes, let it go through the holes of the sponge. That was it. It was a one minute less than that intervention. So thereafter, every night, he had a SpongeBob toy that he actually put on his head. And after a while, he graduated just imagining putting SpongeBob. And then sometimes he'd wrap it around several times in his imagination. And he'd tell himself, if a storm comes, let it go through the sponge. And he has not had his seizure since. It's wow. been eight years. I actually contacted him, again, for the book to make sure I could use his material. And so I got eight-year follow-up. Yeah, so I guess he was 15 when I talked to him last so he'd been having seizures, I think, three times a month before he did this. Mm. Now, interestingly, his electroencephalogram, the brain may have studied, still showed seizures. But he no longer, you couldn't tell, he, he, he didn't have it in his body anymore. So somehow the hypnosis disconnected the physiology from the, from the body.
0: So it sounds like imagination is key in hypnosis.
1: Correct. And I think that willingness to use it is key. I met a girl this morning who had many medical problems. She had abdominal pain. She had nausea. She had uh, dizziness. She had racing heart. Uh, lots of stuff. She was referred by a doctor who sends me many patients who do well. Each of those symptoms can improve with hypnosis. And when you have somebody with a combination of these symptoms, Even more so, you can be certain psychologies involved. And she'd seen many doctors and been suffering this for years. So I told her about hypnosis. I told her my success. And she said, I don't believe it. And I said, why not? Oh, I tried similar things. It's not going to work. I don't believe it. And I said, well, I mean, I've worked with thousands of children. There's literature. There's published medical information. This stuff really does work. Nope, maybe, but not for me. (laughs) You're right. It's not going to work for you. I agree with her. And I didn't teach her. This is exactly the scenario. When I first started doing hypnosis, I thought, well, let me just do the words with her and she'll get better. And those are kids that didn't get better because remember, all hypnosis is self hypnosis. So I said, well, when you decide you want help, I'll be here. I said, when, not if.
0: Yes, A yes.
1: little suggestion there that when she decides. But that's an example of where hypnosis is not going to work. Because mm. if the person, you can discuss why it is that she wouldn't want to help herself. Maybe she didn't believe in herself. Maybe she had tried so many different things didn't work. She had given up. Maybe she wanted to be sick. There's all sorts of reasons that people choose not to do this. But fortunately, that's the small number of kids. Mm. Love it.
0: So what are some other ways to get into a trance-like state besides visualization?
1: Great question. So breathing, and this you can't you borrow from meditation. So imagine if you had a, a sailboat on your breastbone, the tip of your breastbone, and imagine going up and down with your breath. So when you breathe in, your sailboats should go up. You breathe out, the sailboats should go down. And if you don't want the sailboat, because you don't want visualization, just focus on the sensation of the breath coming in and out of your nose or focus on, put your hand on your belly and notice your hand going up and down with the breath. So that's using breathing as a, a way of going to hypnosis. Something called the eye roll induction. And this technique, which only takes about 10 seconds is you roll your eyes into your head, like trying to look up the top of your head mm. with your eyes open, but you roll your eyes up, take a big breath in, as you breathe out, let your eyelids close while your eyes are still looking up. And as you exhale, your eyelids close. And once you exhale, you, you put your eyes in a regular position and you'll be in a state of hypnosis.
0: That's very cool. That's,
1: That's very, very fast. cool. A very rapid induction.
0: So you talk about how words alone can improve health. And how are words connected to hypnosis?
1: Well, hypnosis... As we practice it, largely involves words. I said, as we practice it, because you could do hypnosis without words. Uh, I haven't had that much experience with that. Uh, most of the stuff I do is uh, using <coughs> words to help people. Hypnosis without words, you know, you could shake somebody's hands, and the way I think Milton Erickson, the grandfather of hypnosis, talked about doing that. He would shake a hand in a particular way and, then, like, do a sudden movement, and they'd go to hypnosis. No words used. I don't like that because it's sort of like the person doesn't know what's going to happen. And I, I'm all about teaching control, teaching the patient to control themselves. But words, we already talked a little bit about it because I, I mentioned to you how I said, "When you're ready to do hypnosis, come back." That's a suggestion. People register words at a subconscious level, and. When you learn about hypnosis and you learn about the power of words, you become more careful about how you use them. So for example, the word try is a word I avoid. Try, like the girl this morning who wasn't so sure she believed anything about hypnosis, she said, I'm willing to try it. And I said, no, trying means you're leaving room for failure. In fact, if you think about it, whenever you said you tried something, it always means you failed at it. Because if you did it, you would say, I did it. So... If you're going to do something, do it. Uh, Yoda said that, right? He said, (laughs) do or do not. There is no try. So try is a word to avoid. Another thing about words that works without hypnosis as well as within hypnosis is using positive words. Whenever we describe something, our mind listens to us. So if you have a test tomorrow and you said, I'm anxious about it or I think I'm going to fail, the mind listens to that and says, yeah, I'm nervous about that too and I, I might fail. But if instead you say, I want to be calm during the test, or I want to be confident and recall everything I know, your mind's thinking, okay, I'm going to be calm and recall everything I know. Because the mind does what you tell it to do. So I teach patients, that's the first lesson actually, is how to rephrase their thinking. Many of my patients think negatively. That's why they're there. That's why they get anxious. When people get anxious, it's because of how they think right? Oh, something could go wrong, or I don't know what's going to happen. Something could go awful. That's typical anxious thinking. And so rather than thinking about, oh, something could go badly, think about, I want things to go well. And I want it to go well in this specific way, and that makes helps actualize it.
0: Love it. So in the chapter, The Tip of the Iceberg, you talk about the role of the subconscious and you said, My main bias, based in large part on my experiences with my patients, is that the subconscious processes knowledge and wisdom of which the patient is unaware. So how would you define subconscious and do you see that differently from unconscious?
1: So subconscious is I define it for my patients as the part of our mind that we're not aware of typically, which does include what some people call the unconscious. So the people who get into the more elaborate definition will say the unconscious part of our mind will never be able to access. So like the part of our mind that controls heart rate or breathing would be the unconscious. The subconscious is a part of mind we could access under appropriate circumstances. The pre-conscious, is like the tip of the tongue. It's almost conscious awareness. not quite there. But for clinical purposes, I don't find it useful to think about all those things. I just lump that all into subconscious. Okay. That's how I think of it.
0: And so you talked about many of the common characteristics of the subconscious. And I loved what you talked about in terms of the subconscious is wise, and especially when you're talking about teens, that section, could you talk about that?
1: Sure. I have found that teens, if you give them the opportunity to express themselves, are very smart. They don't act wisely. They, they act stupidly <laughs> because their brain is not fully developed. So let's go over that. The frontal part of the brain, as I'm sure you know, is only fully developed by the time you're 25 to 30. So when you're a teen, you're halfway there. And the frontal part of the brain is in charge of decision-making, empathy, emotional regulation, and control of impulsivity. So if you have a teen at home, you'll recognize they're impulsive. <laughs> they don't think things through. They get upset very easily. And they're not especially empathetic, especially to yes. the parents, right? Yes. We're describing a teenager. Actually, my, my father, God bless him, who passed away uh, seven, eight years ago, he suffered from frontal temporal lobe dementia. Frontal lobe sort of broke apart. He kind of turned into a teenager. His decision-making was poor. He lacked empathy. He was impulsive. I saw that, fortunately in, in my father. So that's your dealing with the teen. However, when you take a teen and say, okay, quiet your mind, listen to your subconscious, they know so much. They have such great knowledge and wisdom. And so when I teach the teens, I t- I'll tell them, no offense intended. Your your brain doesn't have it quite there. So be aware of that. And when it's time to make a decision, slow down, think it through, listen to your subconscious, then you'll know what the right thing to do is. And teens who take that advice are model teens. They're, they're amazing. Sometimes the subconscious will tell me things that the conscious is in denial about. And this is especially in 12, 13-year-olds. I've seen a number of times where they teenager will say hey you know I've been fine life is good and the subconscious says, no it's not this is like you're messed up big time or you're nasty to your brother and the teen says oh okay and then the next week same thing again I'm fine things are great no it's not when that happens it speaks a lot to the teen to allow that to occur and sort of come to terms with the fact that things aren't as good as they seem in fact I wish in this whole world adults would do that too because so many times Adults are in denial and don't really listen to themselves. Yes, yeah, so that's capable, and, and teens are capable of that. And once I learned that, my respect for teens grew immensely. And I teach this to parents. So please know, when you're talking to your teen, they know what's right and wrong. Don't, don't lecture them. If, if you're told them, you know, if, they, if you're teaching them for the first time, tell them this is right, this is wrong. Drugs aren't right. You know, whatever whatever you want to talk about. But once you've told them a couple of times and they don't follow your instructions, don't just yell at them again about what they already know. Your job, and don't yell, because when you confront your team, they're gonna shut down. So if they're doing something you don't want them to do, you need to get them in a space where you can talk calmly and elicit from them what they know and ask them what they think. And they'll usually come around and say what you think if you give them the space. If you talk over them, If you assume they don't know, they're going to say, well, it doesn't matter. They don't. A lot of teens think, my parents don't know me. And the way the parents act, they don't. They don't understand a teen already knows that. A teen can sometimes know right from wrong, and they choose to do wrong. And that's a different lecture. You know, don't you know right from wrong? Yeah, they know it, but they choose to do wrong for various reasons. And then the helpful parent will say, why are you making that choice? And the teen says, well, because all my friends are doing it. And the parents say, well, you might not want to do it your friends do because it could harm you but it's your decision don't say no way you could do this I'm going to punish you if you do it because then the is going to hide it and still do it so if you want to help your teen make sure they understand your point of view but elicit from them if they already know it, let them tell you and then let them solve it usually you'll be surprised they'll solve it in a good way
0: that's wonderful so how does the subconscious deal with trauma
1: Well, it's a very broad question in that trauma can mean many things. Uh, Let's start by saying,
0: or like, let's say a painful memory.
1: Right. So first of all, the subconscious can discuss things with the therapist uh, that the patient may not be able to. So if it's a traumatic event, the patient might have buried it or it's too painful to discuss, but with the subconscious, you can actually talk about it openly. Oftentimes when you Really engage with the subconscious, the conscious mind is not aware of it even. So you can say, well, What do you think of our discussion? Should the patient be told later? And sometimes the subconscious will say, Don't tell him anything. Okay. And sometimes they'll say, Please, or, I'll tell him, or Please, you tell him. So there's different variations. So the nice thing with the subconscious dealing with trauma is you can, like as a therapist, you know, you always are taught, Don't reactivate the trauma. While with the subconscious, you're not going to reactivate it because it somehow can view it in a more distant fashion. So that's one example. Another example with the subconscious, you can have it go back in time. There's a hypnotic technique called age regression, where you have the patient imagine being at the traumatic site and then reliving it in a different way. So let's say, knowing that the patient will have survived it and can deal with it calmly in their imagination as if that's what happened the first time. And that sometimes relieves a traumatic response, just that kind of therapy.
0: Mm, mm, interesting. So what are the seven steps to guide children and teens towards strength and wellness?
1: Well, that's, I think in chapter uh, 22. <laughs> <laughs> or just to throw but out some. We've, we've, we've got, well, we've talked about some of them already. We talked about uh, the active listening. We talked about, pause of talk. we talked about quieting yourself down and listen, teaching your child gratitude, be aware of the goodness in the world, be thankful for what you have and what you can help other people with. All those things are really helpful, keeping things in perspective. One of the nice things I like about teaching kids about the subconscious is it gives them a spiritual moment. I think spirituality is lacking in our world. As people have moved away from religion, and gone to a secular society where we only believe in ourselves, that's not very spiritual. And I think when you have a spiritual perspective, it puts things in perspective, and you can deal much better with life challenges. So I define spirituality as being triggered by being aware there's something greater than yourself. So if you're religious, God's greater than yourself. If you go out in nature and see the magnificent mountains, that's a spiritual experience. If you go to a concert and hear amazing music, that's a spiritual experience. And if you become aware of how your subconscious is so knowledgeable and wise, that's also a spiritual experience. And so keeping things in perspective is a way to help teens do better and better in life.
0: Yeah. So in your chapter, Coping in Crisis, what are the seven ways parents can help children create calm in a storm?
1: Well, again, I'm not going to cover all seven. I encourage people to read my book, Changing (laughs) Lives with Hypnosis, (laughs) The Journey to the Center. And so I guess the, the one thing I would tell you is really helpful in crisis is to, again, put it in perspective and think about it in a different way. So a crisis is an opportunity to improve. A crisis, while you may not control what happened, you do control how you react to it and you want to react in a way that's going to be helpful to you in the long run. Um, So for example, um, does the crisis give an opportunity to take a breath and reconsider your priorities in life? Does a crisis help you better appreciate how wonderful your life is once you recover from it? Does a crisis help you make life much more precious in your mind? I, I often go to the death motif because uh, I, as a pediatric pulmonologist, I work with a lot of children who passed away, unfortunately, and I had to deal with death pretty early on in my career. And that's a pretty bad crisis. Somebody dies, right? And so, how do you deal with that, as an example? So, you think about how your life was enriched by that person when they were alive. If your spiritual beliefs allow, think about what the implications are of a continued existence for that individual. And by the way, when I talk to subconsciouses, they usually endorse that they existed before the patient was alive and almost always say they'll exist after the patient passes away. Well, wow. I don't know if that's true. I, I think it's true actually, but I don't know. But all I can tell you is among my patients, that's the pretty standard theme. So if you believe that, then it colors death differently. So for example, If you realize that death, if you think about death as, well, this life is over, but existence continues, it has a very different tone than this life is over and everything is done with that individual. Those are a couple of examples of how you can think differently about an event in a way that's helpful and healthy. Like I worked with a child, again, on a death theme. The father just passed away suddenly, and I told him, well, construct a memory box that you can use for in the future, uh, get your photographs, get the father's music, get something that he liked to hold, uh, uh, using all the senses. Mm. And you can have that for years to come when you want to spend time with your father's memory or with your father's spirit, depending on your point of view. And again, it's, it's taking a bad situation and making the best of it.
0: So obviously, you know that we are living in a kind of a post-or-still-here COVID situation. Have you used hypnosis dealing with any of the fallout of COVID?
1: Absolutely. So, so, first of all, when COVID hit, I coached the patients who are in my system already to how to handle it. So, I said to them, find something good that you could do because of COVID. So, you're stuck at home now, right? What can you do at home that you weren't able to do before? Can you? I have patients who learned a music instrument, I have patients who learned a foreign language. And I told them, do something with your time that five years from now you'll say, oh, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do that because of COVID. And my patients who were in my system were, did really well in large part, they handled it pretty well. Then the patients came in who weren't in my system to start with who were quite anxious about COVID. They were worried about them getting sick. They were worried about getting their family members sick. They were worried about somebody dying. And uh, a lot of kids got very, very scared which is unfortunate because as you know, COVID in kids wasn't that bad, although a lot of people obviously died in in adults. When I met those kids, I talked to them about calming themselves and talking to their subconscious and the subconscious generally would calm them because the subconscious, especially if it says it lived before, has been through crises before. So the kid, this is my first crisis, but the subconscious, no, this, this too shall pass. Then there were kids who got COVID and I started seeing long COVID situations. So I, I saw one boy who developed psychosis after COVID Mm. and it was actually related to uh, PTSD. Somehow I, this is actually was early on when we did, we, now we know that COVID affects the psychiatric state in a third of patients. It's not at all uncommon. This was early on. I thought it was COVID and later on I said, yeah, it was COVID, but he had been uh, abused when he was like a youngster and it only came out at 17 after COVID mm. and he was having flashbacks and he was hearing screaming in his head. And uh, fortunately I just told him to calm himself to get past it and in about three weeks he, he got it together and the symptoms went away, he, he was fine. Again, I did hypnosis, I didn't go to medications and I didn't label him psychotic, it wouldn't have helped. And he was traumatized. We worked through it. Then coming off, out of COVID, we're still in the middle of it somehow. Hopefully, we won't have another surge. But anyway, when kids had to go back to school, uh, the whole host of kids who had difficulties, the ones with social anxiety, were traumatized going back to school because for two years, they got to be at home by themselves. And now they have to go back to school. And so that's created a whole new set of kids that you have to teach them how to calm themselves, how to expose themselves to the social environments, and how to, to reintegrate into society. So that's a whole nother uh, task that's, that we have now as a result of COVID.
0: Yeah. I've seen that too. So any last advice that you would give the
1: moms listening? Believe in your child, listen to your child. Sometimes active listening really helps. By active listening, I mean, your child tells you something and you repeat back, this is what you I understood you to say. And if the child says, no, that's when I said, and, okay, then tell me again. So really make sure you listen. And by so doing, the child will realize you're listening. And you'll make sure you understand what the child is saying. Help the child solve their own issues. Understand, I've been using this metaphor recently, to, to talking to teens, parents of teens. You remember how when your child was a toddler, they uh, when they learned to walk, they would fall, they get, get up, fall, get up, fall, get up until they got it. Your teen is like that. They're going to fall and get up and fall and get up. It's part of the process. So stay calm as a parent. Understand it's part of the process. Let them make the mistakes. Don't prevent your teen from making mistakes. So many parents are saying, oh, no, it's my responsibility to to make sure my teen does well. Otherwise, I failed as a parent. That is not true. Dr. Foster Klein, the author of Teaching with Love and Logic, he said, your job as a parent is to provide your team with an environment in which to do well. Your teen's job is to do well. It's not your job. And I tell that to parents. Let the child make their mistakes. You're there to help them pick up the pieces if they want. Otherwise, unless it's a life or death situation, let them learn. They will get it, just like your toddler learned to walk.
0: Great advice. So again, I'm speaking to Dr. Ron Anbar. And his book, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis A Journey to the Center. I really love this book. There are great, interesting stories. And at the end of each chapter, there are things that you can apply to your life. So I found it really applicable. Thank you so much for your time. I know you are a very busy man.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me share uh, some of what I know. My mission is to get people to understand how they can help themselves and thank you for letting me help them know that
0: you're so welcome this concludes this week's episode of power your parenting moms teens podcast if this podcast has been helpful i would absolutely love it if you could go to apple podcasts and leave a five-star review this makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold, and you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's.